Chapter 11 from Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 3, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 3, Chapter 11. Having briefly grouped together the more important measures of defense adopted by the cabinet regime, we must recapitulate the events already described, namely, the firing on the Star of the West and her retreat, Anderson's threat of retaliation and his failure to keep it, Governor Pickensen's demand for the surrender of Sumter and Anderson's refusal, Anderson's proposal to refer the question to Washington and the governor's acceptance, and finally the departure of the two messengers who arrived in Washington on the evening of January 13. The Star of the West had returned to New York, and the commander of the unfortunate expedition was on the same day writing his official report. Colonel I. W. Hayne, the governor's envoy, called on President Buchanan on the following day. The 14th. The President, doubtless already fully informed by Anderson's messenger, appears to have made no difficulty about receiving him in an informal and unofficial interview. He declined, however, to hold any conversation with him and insisted that their transactions must be in writing. Colonel Hayne thereupon gave him notice that he bore a letter from the governor of South Carolina in regard to the occupation of Fort Sumter, and that he would deliver it the next day. Remembering the advantage he had hitherto derived from his tone of audacity, Governor Pickens persevered in the use of this favored and usually successful weapon. I have determined to send to you the Honorable I. W. Hayne, the Attorney General of South Carolina, and have instructed him to demand the delivery of Fort Sumter in the harbor of Charleston to the constituted authorities of the state of South Carolina. The demand I have made of Major Anderson, and which I now make of you, is suggested because of my earnest desire to avoid the bloodshed which a persistence in your attempt to retain possession of that fort will cause, and which will be unavailing to secure to you that possession. Such was the language of the governor's letter to the president, adding at the close that South Carolina would account for the value of the fort. It had been the unremitting effort of the conspirators to reduce the controversy to a question of dollars and cents, and in this they were much encouraged by the language of the president himself, who in his reply to the rebel commissioners had placed his action on no higher grounds than that it was his duty to defend Fort Sumter as a portion of the public property of the United States. Meanwhile, the occurrences at Charleston and Haines' mission had been the subject of a conference by the senators from the cotton states yet in Washington. Not anticipating a reinforcement of Sumter, but trusting in the peaceful consummation of their scheme of secession, they had determined in a caucus on January 5 that the states should go out at once and provide for an early organization of a Confederate government not later than 15th February while they themselves proposed to remain in Congress until the 4th of March to keep the hands of Mr. Buchanan tied and defeat hostile legislation. But events were crowding them. They had not entirely succeeded in keeping the hands of Mr. Buchanan tied. 
reenforcement had been attempted despite their vigilance and intrigue. A second effort might succeed. Thompson had been driven out of the cabinet, and now Governor Pickens's rashness was about to precipitate hostilities and rouse the North. They sent a messenger to Colonel Hayne to remonstrate against this hot haste, which might expose their web of conspiracy to the shock of sudden war. They desired delay until they could consult more fully and devise further means to keep the hands of Mr. Buchanan tied. Colonel Hayne, having readily joined in their scheme, did not deliver the governor's letter to the president as he had appointed. Instead thereof, and on the same day, ten of the senators from the states of Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Florida, and Texas prepared an open letter to Colonel Hayne. In diplomatic phrases, they requested him to delay the delivery of the governor's letter to the president. They had assurances, they said, that Sumter was held with no hostile or unfriendly purpose, but merely as property of the United States. We represent states, they continued, which have already seceded from the United States, or will have done so before the 1st of February next, and which will meet your state in convention on or before the 15th of that month. Our people feel that they have a common destiny with your people, and expect to form with them in that convention a new confederation and provisional government. We must and will share your fortunes, suffering with you the evils of war if it cannot be avoided, and enjoying with you the blessings of peace if it can be preserved. We therefore trust that an arrangement will be agreed upon between you and the President, at least till the 15th of February next, by which time your and our states may, in convention, devise a wise, just, and peaceable solution of existing difficulties. If not clothed with power to make such an arrangement, then we trust that you will submit our suggestions to the governor of your state for his instructions. Until you have received and communicated his response to the president, of course your state will not attack Fort Sumter, and the president will not offer to reinforce it. This letter was written on January 15, and to give an air of deliberation and dignity to a correspondence invented purely for the purpose of consuming time, two days were allowed to elapse for its pretended consideration. On the 17th, Colonel Hayne prepared a reply. I am not clothed with power to make the arrangement you suggest, he wrote, but provided you can get assurances with which you are entirely satisfied that no reinforcements will be sent to Fort Sumter in the interval, and that public peace will not be disturbed by any act of hostility towards South Carolina, I will refer your communication to the authorities. If your proposition is acceded to, you may assure the President that no attack will be made on Fort Sumter until a response from the Governor of South Carolina has been received and communicated to him. A plain evidence that this whole correspondence was nothing but a scheme of delay is afforded in the fact that it took these senators two days more until January 19 to write a note of half a dozen lines, submitting it to the President and asking its consideration. Mr. Buchanan fell easily into the trap of dilatory diplomacy. Though undoubtedly bound by Anderson's truce of the 12th, of which he received notice on the 13th, he could, according to its terms, have ended it by a return messenger to Charleston. The cabinet was apparently in a mood to send a second relief expedition and reinforce Sumter at all hazards, for Secretary Black, in a forcible letter of inquiry to General Scott, asked on January 16, 
What obstacles exist to prevent the sending of such reinforcements at any time when it may be necessary to do so? Major Anderson has a position so nearly impregnable that an attack upon him at present is wholly improbable, and he is supplied with provisions which will last him very well for two months. In the meantime, Fort Sumter is invested on every side by the avowedly hostile forces of South Carolina. It is in a state of siege. If the troops remain in Fort Sumter without any change in their condition, and the hostile attitude of South Carolina remains as it is now, the question of Major Anderson's surrender is one of time only. The authorities of South Carolina are improving every moment and increasing their ability to prevent reinforcement every hour, while every day that rises sees us with a power diminished to send in the requisite relief. I am persuaded that the difficulty of relieving Major Anderson has been very much magnified to the minds of some persons. The Star of the West did pass the battery and did overcome the difficulties of the navigation, meeting with no serious trouble from either cause. They have tried it. We can say pro bottom est, and there is an end of the controversy. I am convinced that a pirate or a slaver or a smuggler who could be assured of making $500 by going into the harbor in the face of all the dangers which now threaten a vessel bearing the American flag would laugh them to scorn. Would the South Carolinians dare to fire upon any vessel which Major Anderson would tell them beforehand must be permitted to pass on pain of his guns being opened upon her assailants? But suppose it impossible for an unarmed vessel to pass the battery, what is the difficulty of sending the Brooklyn or the Macedonian in? I admit that the state of things may be somewhat worse now than they were a week ago and are probably getting worse every day, but is not that the strongest reason that can be given for taking time by the forelock? Clearly, Secretary Black was in an altogether different frame of mind from that in which, as Attorney General, he penned his famous opinion on coercion. If the current of events had educated him into a logic so faultless and an enthusiasm so eager, it is fair to assume that the patriotic Holt, the belligerent Dix, and the impulsive Stanton entertained substantially identical views. Unfortunately, the contemporary records are very meager. There is a dispatch from Holt to Anderson of the same date with the letter quoted above. He is told that he rightly designates the firing into the Star of the West as an act of war without provocation that his forbearance to return the fire is fully approved by the President. Your late dispatches, as well as the very intelligent statement of Lieutenant, have received the, relieved the government of the apprehensions previously entertained for your safety. In consequence, it is not its purpose at present to reinforce you. The attempt to do so would no doubt be attended by a collision of arms and the effusion of blood, a national calamity which the President is most anxious, if possible, to avoid. Whenever in your judgment additional supplies or reinforcements are necessary for your safety or for a successful defense of the fort, you will at once communicate the fact to this department, and a prompt and vigorous effort will be made to forward them. This was perhaps as little as could in magnanimity be said to a brave and conscientious commander. On the other hand, it was doubtless all that could be obtained from a president once more taking counsel of his fears instead of, of his duty. We learn from Mr. Buchanan's own memorandum that on the afternoon of this same 16th of January, Senator Clement C. Clay of Alabama called upon him on behalf of the seceding senators, and after some general talk about Fort Sumter, turned the conversation upon Major Anderson's truce. Premising that there was a truce agreed upon so long as Colonel Hine 
was there, to which the President assented, Clay went on to say that the Senators wanted Hayne to remain a few days and submit a proposition to the Government of South Carolina to agree that Major Anderson should be placed in his former position, and that the truce might be extended until the meeting at Milledgeville, or even till the 4th of March. Mr. Buchanan replied in substance that he could consider no proposition, unless it were in writing, that he would not withdraw Anderson from Sumter, and that the truce would only continue until Colonel Hayne left here, which I supposed would be in a few days. The President writes further that in the course of conversation I told him that I felt as much anxiety to prevent a collision and spare the effusion of blood as any man living, but this must be done in consistency with the discharge of all my duties as laid down in my annual message and my late special message. The anxiety of the seceding senators for delay even till the 4th of March is here plainly admitted. The inference is also irresistible that the loyal cabinet members were discouraged at finding Mr. Buchanan again in communication with the emissary of a governor who had wantonly fired on the flag and a cabal of conspirators who were about to send him notice of their intent to set up a government in rebellion and with sublime effrontery asked him to promise them a safeguard for the act. The correspondence between the senators and Colonel Hayne was sent to the president. Two more days were lost in considering and discussing it, and on January 22, he instructed Mr. Holt to reply. The president has no authority to enter into such an agreement or understanding. As an executive officer, he is simply bound to protect the public property, so far as this may be practicable, and it would be manifest violation of his duty to place himself under engagements that he would not perform this duty either for an indefinite or a limited period. At the present moment, it is not deemed necessary to reinforce Major Anderson because he makes no such request and feels quite secure in his position. Should his safety, however, require reinforcements, every effort will be made to supply them. In regard to an assurance from the President that the public peace will not be disturbed by any act of hostility toward South Carolina, the answer will readily occur to yourselves. To Congress and to Congress alone belongs the power to make war, and it would be an act of usurpation for the executive to give any assurance that Congress would not exercise this power, however strongly he may be convinced that no such intention exists. Both parties could drive comfort from this reply. The president that he had rejected the suggested arrangement until the 15th of February, the senatorial cabal that he had practically granted it by entertaining their mediation in disavowing any present intention to reinforce Sumter and in tacitly adopting and indefinitely prolonging Anderson's truce. Neither are we to forget the undercurrent of interviews, solicitations, and private manipulations which were again working upon the scanty courage of President Buchanan. The scheme of dilatory diplomacy was succeeding. The month of January was rapidly slipping by during this parade of etiquette, this interchange of requests and refusal, this bandying of theory and argument. Meantime, the tide of rebellion was rising day by day. Batteries were building at Charleston. Forts were being seized by order of the governors of the cotton states. The South was becoming a vast camp. A rebellious military league was preparing to unite in provisional government at Montgomery, Alabama. The senatorial cabal took care to continue and prolong the correspondence. They sent Mr. Holt's letter to Colonel Hayne, and he in turn went through the dumb show of referring it to Charleston. This communication, he said, was far from satisfactory, but since they expressed their confidence that Sumter would not be reinforced, nor the public peace disturbed, he would still withhold the governor's letter and refer the whole matter to the authorities of South Carolina. 
Pending the reference, we must notice another episode which now combined with this senatorial intrigue. One of the most important naval and military stations of the United States was that of Pensacola, Florida. Here was a large and valuable navy yard. Near it on the mainland, Fort Barrancas, built for a garrison of 250 men, but occupied by only a nominal garrison of 46 men under Lieutenant Adam J. Slemmer. Fort McRae, built for a war garrison, garrison of 650 men, but occupied by a single ordnance sergeant. And on Santa Rosa Island, immediately opposite Fort Pickens, built for a garrison of 1,260 men, entirely empty. These were all strong and defensible works, and among the first, whose occupation was originally recommended by General Scott, October 29, 1860. Hence, when under the cabinet regime he received permission to act, he wrote to Lieutenant Slemmer, January 3, The General-in-Chief directs that you take measures to do the utmost in your power to prevent the seizure of either of the forts in Pensacola Harbor by surprise or assault. Consulting first with the commander of the Navy Yard, who will probably have received instructions to cooperate with you. Secretary Toosey sent a similar order to Commodore Armstrong in command of the Navy Yard. These orders arrived on the 9th. Lieutenant Slemmer, young, ardent, and patriotic, immediately called upon Armstrong, who, having served his country half a century, was slow from age and infirmity, and indifferent through the influence of two or three of his disloyal subordinate officers. Nevertheless, the lifelong habits of strict discipline and the peremptory instructions just received induced him to place the steamer Windot of six guns and the storeship supply, as also thirty ordinary seamen from the yard at the service of the lieutenant. With this help, Slemmer now repeated the strategy of Anderson, spiking the guns and destroying the remaining powder in Forts Barrancas and McRae. He transferred his command with all available supplies to Fort Pickens on Santa Rosa Island. The 9th, the 10th, and the 11th of January were occupied in this work, and the transfer was substantially completed, notwithstanding the efforts of the two or three subordinate officers of the Navy Yard, who were in complicity with the rebels, to delay and thwart the movement. Lieutenant Slemmer was not a moment too quick. The Florida Convention passed an ordinance of secession on the 10th, and two days afterwards a regiment of Florida and Alabama volunteers headed by two commissioners under authority of the governor of Florida, appeared at the Navy Yard gate and demanded its surrender. There were a few hasty formalities, Commodore Armstrong first managing to destroy his signal books. Then the flag was hauled down, and the Navy Yard, as well as the Marine Hospital and the two abandoned forts, were occupied by the rebels. Summer's promptness, however, had saved Fort Pickens and the two ships. A considerable rebel force was shortly afterwards concentrated to take it, but its leader, Colonel Chase, was a former engineer officer and had himself built the fort. Knowing its strength, he explained that he would not risk an assault upon it with less than 5,000 men and submitted to an imputation of cowardice with which he was taunted at a council of war rather than make a futile attack. The prompt and gallant course of Lieutenant Slemmer was like a little gleam of sunshine in the overshadowing gloom of defection and treason in the South. The telegraph was already in the hands of the rebels, and the news only reached Washington after a lapse of some days and then through private channels. Secretary Toosey had indeed, in anticipation of danger, ordered several ships to Pensacola, the St. Louis of 20 guns from Vera Cruz on December 24, the Macedonian of 22 guns from Portsmouth on January 5, the Sabine of 50 guns from Vera Cruz on January 9. But none of these arrived on time. 
It was now determined to send immediate reenforcements to Slemmer to enable him to hold Fort Pickens. The Brooklyn, which returned to Norfolk after her useless miss succor to the Star of the West, was therefore ordered to take on board a company of regulars from Fort Monroe under command of Captain Bogdus of the artillery and proceed on this errand. The orders were issued on the 21st, and she sailed from Hampton Roads on the 24th of January. At this juncture of the antagonistic sentiments of loyalty and treason were convulsing the legislature of Virginia, then an extra session at Richmond. Among other temporizing expedients, that body appointed ex-president John Tyler and Judge John Robertson commissioners to procure promises from the general government on one hand and the seceding states on the other to abstain from any and all acts calculated to produce a collision of arms during a certain peace convention of the states proposed and urged by Virginia, of which we shall speak in a future chapter. On this mission, Mr. Tyler reached Washington and held an interview with Mr. Buchanan on the 24th of January. He found him in a mood of mixed despondency and stubbornness. He said he could give no pledges, that it was his duty to enforce the laws, and the whole power rested with Congress. He complained that the South had not treated him properly, that they had made unnecessary demonstrations by seizing unprotected arsenals and forts, and thus perpetrated acts of useless bravado which had quite as well been left alone. But the ex-president talked him into a more complacent humor. The states, he said, would account for the public property they had seized. This and other arguments soothed Mr. Buchanan. He promised to refer Tyler's mission to Congress with a strong recommendation to that body to avoid the passage of any hostile legislation. Mr. Tyler was quick to note the impression he had made. A moment's reflection satisfied me that if the message contained the recommendation of Congress to abstain from hostile legislation, I was at liberty to infer a similar determination on his part of a state of quietude. On the following day, Mr. Tyler was chatting familiarly with Secretary Black and Attorney General Stanton, who were making him a call of ceremony, when a dispatch was handed to him that the Brooklyn had sailed with troops from Norfolk. He handed the dispatch to his visitors, but they at once became discreetly noncommittal. I am attached to the law department, said Stanton, and not in the way of knowing anything about it. Secretary Black said he had heard and believed that the Brooklyn had sailed with some troops, but he did not know when she sailed or to what point she was destined. But the ex-president was not to be put off. He wrote a hurried note to Mr. Buchanan, asking to be informed on what day the Brooklyn received her orders, on what day she sailed, and whether she has recruits for any southern port, and if so, for which. His persistent inquisitiveness was only partially satisfied. At midnight, he received a note in reply, in which Mr. Buchanan told him that her orders were issued on the Monday or Tuesday preceding, that she goes on an errand of mercy and relief, and that her movements are in no way to be connected with South Carolina, all of which information Tyler transmitted by telegraph next morning to his co-commissioner, Judge Robertson, at Charleston. This much being known, it was easy enough to divine the destination of the Brooklyn. Her orders, however, were still a subject of uncertainty. The ships long since ordered to Pensacola were arriving. Together, the forces began to assume formidable proportions. The fleet before Fort Pickens could, upon an emergency, have thrown five or six hundred men into the fort without including the company from Fort Monroe. Might not the Brooklyn carry instructions to Lieutenant Slemmer or some other officer of known energy to assume the offensive and retake or destroy the Navy Yard and the two strong forts on the mainland? It was a critical moment for the revolting states. 
Now, if ever, they needed a few weeks of undisturbed consolidation. Even the impetuous governor of South Carolina was clamorous for quiet and for speedy organization. Urge Mississippi, he wrote to his commissioner, to send delegates to the Montgomery meeting of states at as early a day as possible, say 4th February, to form immediately a strong provisional government. It is the only thing to prevent war, and let that convention elect immediately a commander-in-chief for the seceding states. The senatorial cabal therefore added their own redoubled efforts to those of ex-President Tyler to keep the hands of Mr. Buchanan tied. One of their number, Mr. Mallory, had hurried to Pensacola to inspect the situation. From him there now came a dispatch dated January 28 to Senators Slidell, Hunter, and Bigler, thus shrewdly coupling the influence of a Pennsylvania Democrat to that of the leading conspirators. With an urgent request that they would lay it before the president. This dispatch expressed an ardent desire to preserve the peace, as well as the most positive assurance from himself and Colonel Chase that no attack would be made on the fort if its present status should be suffered to remain. Under these combined importunities, the fortitude of Mr. Buchanan broke down. Despite his repeated declarations through Mr. Holt's note of January 22, in his conversation with Mr. Tyler January 24, and again in his special message to Congress January 28, that he would make no pledges, he once more bound himself in what may for convenience be called the Fort Pickens Truce. By his direction, the following joint instructions from the Secretaries of War and Navy were on the 29th of January telegraphed to the combined forces at Pensacola Harbor. Upon receiving satisfactory assurances from Mr. Mallory and Colonel Chase that Fort Pickens will not be attacked, you are instructed not to land the company on board the Brooklyn unless said fort shall be attacked or preparations made for its attack. The provisions necessary for the supply of the fort you will land. The Brooklyn and the other vessels of war on the station will remain, and you will exercise the utmost vigilance and be prepared at a moment's warning to land the company at Fort Pickens, and you, may, you and they will instantly repel any attack on the fort. Mr. Buchanan's and asserts that this arrangement received the approbation of every member of his cabinet. It would be difficult to reconcile the statement with their other acts and opinions except upon a single hypothesis that perhaps they tolerated it as his stubborn resolve in preference to some more pernicious and compromising decision. But the assertion is positively contradicted by Mr. Stanton, who distinctly states that Judge Black, General Dixon himself, had opposed that order. Mr. Buchanan also declares that General Scott expressly approved this joint order before it was issued, and in corroboration quotes from a private note written by Mr. Holt to himself of that date. I have the satisfaction of saying that on submitting the paper to General Scott, he expressed himself entirely satisfied with it, saying there could be no objection to the arrangement in a military point of view or otherwise. General Scott, on the other hand, disavows all knowledge of the joint instruction and all recollection of such an interview with Mr. Holt. These differences form a curious historical dispute, but they do not change the essential character of the act. Whether or not the president's decision was sustained by official advice, it remains a glaring instance of executive vacillation and a deplorable surrender of almost vital military advantages, which embarrass not only his own, but also the succeeding administration. General Scott has left us a conclusive professional criticism of the measure. It was known at the Navy Department that the Brooklyn, with Captain Vogdis on board, would be obliged in open sea to stand off and on Fort Pickens, and in rough weather might sometimes be 50 miles off. 
Indeed, if so at sea, the fort might have been attacked and easily carried before the reinforcement could have reached the beach in open sea where alone it could land. Mr. Buchanan, Mr. Holt, and myself were all landsmen and could know but little of the impossibility of landing troops on an open sea beach with a high wind and surf. Mr. Toosey, Secretary of the Navy, with officers about him of intelligence and nautical experience, ought to have said plumply that if Bogdus was not to land except in case of attack upon Fort Pickens, he might as well have remained at Fortress Monroe, as the prohibition placed the fort, so far as he was concerned, at the mercy, or as the event showed, on the want of enterprise on the part of the rebel command at Pensacola. The Fort Pickens truce concluded, the senatorial cabal permitted Colonel Hayne to resume the duties of his mission to the President concerning Fort Sumter. Their manipulation of this negotiation is once more revealed by a comparison of dates in the correspondence. Colonel Hayne referred the matter to Governor Pickens on January 24. The Governor wrote his instructions in reply on the 26th, but in order not to embarrass the Fort Pickens transaction, the ordinary 24 hours transmission was stretched out to four days. On January 31, Colonel Hayne directed his first official communication to the President. After stating the occasion of de delay, he said, You will perceive that it is upon the presumption that it is solely as property that you continue to hold Fort Sumter that I have been selected for the performance of the duty upon which I have entered. I do not come as a military man to demand the surrender of a fortress, but as the legal officer of the state, its attorney general, to claim for the state the exercise of its undoubted right of eminent domain, and to pledge the state to make good all injury to the rights of property which arise from the exercise of the claim. South Carolina, as a separate independent sovereign, assumes the right to take into her own possession everything within her limits, essential to maintain her honor or her safety irrespective of the question of property, subject only to the moral duty requiring that comp compensation should be made to the owner, repudiating as you do the idea of coercion, of vowing peaceful intentions and expressing a patriot's horror for civil war and bloody strife among those who once were brethren, it is hoped that on further consideration you will not, on a mere question of property, refuse the reasonable demand of South Carolina, which honor and necessity alike compel her to vindicate. He concluded by setting forth that either the assertion or exercise of the right to send reinforcements to Sumter would be regarded as a declaration of war. The noteworthy feature of this missive is, however, that Governor Pickens's characteristic urgency was all at once abated. If the President were not prepared to give an immediate answer, he might send it within a reasonable time to Charleston, and Hayne might close his mission and return. It was nearly a week later that the President gave his reply through Secretary Holt, who wrote on February 6th, The proposal then now presented to the President is simply an offer on the part of South Carolina to buy Fort Sumter, contents as property of the United States, sustained by a declaration, in effect, that if she is not permitted to make the purchase, she will seize the fort by force of arms. The title of the United States to Fort Sumter is complete and incontestable. Were its interests in this property purely pro proprietary, in the ordinary acceptation of the term, it might probably be subjected to the exercise of the right of eminent domain. 
But it has also political relations to it of a much higher and more imposing character than those of mere proprietorship. It has absolute jurisdiction over the fort and the soil on which it stands. This jurisdiction consists in the authority to exercise exclusive legislation over the property referred to, and is therefore clearly incompatible with the claim of eminent domain now insisted upon by South Carolina. This authority was not derived from any questionable revolutionary source, but from the peaceful session of South Carolina herself, acting through her legislature under a provision of the Constitution of the United States. This seems to have ended the argument on the subject. A few days later, Colonel Hayne, imitating the rebel commissioner, sent a splenetic epistle to the president and left the city. The administration, acting on the theory that Mr. Holt's reply of February 6 terminated Anderson's truce, turned their attention anew to a, a second relief expedition to Sumter. Several plans were discussed, and one apparently adopted. The evidence as to its origin and preparation is vague and conflicting. Captain Ward of the Navy was to take three or four small steamers belonging to the Coast Survey and endeavor to make his way to Anderson with supplies and reinforcements. Mr. Buchanan claims to have initiated it on the 31st of January. An order concerning it, dated February 21, shows that its time of sailing was even then uncertain. The governing causes in this instance may perhaps be best inferred from a letter of Holt to Anderson, February 23, which discloses an abandonment of the attempt. A dispatch received in this city a few days since from Governor Pickens connected with the declaration on the part of those convenient Montgomery claiming to act on behalf of South Carolina as well as the other seceded states that the question of the possession of the forts and other public property therein had been taken from the decision of the individual states and would probably be preceded in its settlement by negotiation with the governor of the United States has impressed the president with a belief that there will be no immediate attack on Fort Sumter and the hope is indulged that wise and patriotic councils may prevail and prevent it all together. The labors of the Peace Congress have not yet closed, and the presence of that body here adds another to the powerful motives already existing for the adoption of every measure, except in necessary self-defense for avoiding a collision with the forces that surround you. Dilatory diplomacy had done its allotted work. While Mr. Buchanan refused a truce in theory, he granted one in fact. Between the 12th of January and the 6th of February, the insurrection at Charleston worked day and night in building batteries and preparing men and material to attack Sumter. In other states, the processes of secession, Caesar, drill, equipment, and organization had also been going on with similar activity. Receiving no effective discouragement or check, the various elements of rebellion had finally united in a provisional Congress at Montgomery, which two days later perfected a provisional government for the rebellion. There can be no severer criticism of this delusive policy of concession and inaction than the course and argument of Governor Pickens, as shown in a letter written by him to the president of the new provisional Congress at Montgomery on the 13th of February, on being informed that it had taken charge of the questions and difficulties between the government and the rebellion. I am perfectly satisfied that the welfare of the new confederation and the necessities of the state require that Fort Sumter should be reduced before the close of the present administration at Washington. Mr. Lincoln cannot do more for this state than Mr. Buchanan has done. If war can be averted, it will be by making the capture of Fort Sumter a fact accomplished during the continuance of the present administration, leaving to the incoming administration the question of an open declaration of war. This, then, was to be the harvest of conciliation, of the wise, just, and peaceful solution, 
which the senatorial cabal had promised, of a patriotic horror for civil war and bloody strife, which Colonel Hayne had invoked, of the allurements of accommodation, which Governor Pickens had so temptingly blended with his threats of violence and assault. Having lulled Mr. Buchanan into confidence, he proposed its sudden and secret violation, and in the same breath with his, with his encomiums on peace, officially advised the shedding of blood, not upon any present necessity, but for the prospective gain of an improved vantage ground towards the new administration. Prudential reasons deferred the scheme for the moment. Six weeks later it was adopted and enacted by the provisional government of the conspiracy. End of chapter 11